follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. Whatever. I'm telling you now so you don't wonder later. Have I ever lied to you? No. And I'm not going to start now. So why bring it up? You know how it makes me feel. I'm a sensitive guy. (laughs) I'm the announcer for the Ellis Martin Report, and I'm okay with my feelings. Okay, on the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm in Toronto with the president of Cream Minerals. Cream Minerals trades on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and in the U.S. on the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. Michael O'Connor. President of Cream Minerals, thanks for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. Now, you've had some interesting developments since we last spoke on the phone about a week ago. What's come up with regard to your Nuevo Millennial project? That's right. We issued a news release last week, and in that news release, there were four drill holes from Ansibocus North, which is a potential open pit target on the uh, floor of the caldera. Of the four holes, the hole 9 missed the zone, which happens in exploration drilling. However, holes 10, 11, and 12 did hit the zone. All of the holes returned good values, and the best value was 68 grams per ton silver and 0.4 grams per ton gold over an intercept of 22 meters. Contained within that intercept and also contained with the intercept on the other two drill holes, 11 and 12, were higher grade intercepts of roughly 2 meters running 150 grams per ton silver and roughly 0.7 grams to 0.8 grams per ton gold. So overall, really quite good results. I'm very happy with them. When you take those within the context of a uh, open pit potential, it becomes really very interesting. Well, you've got high grades at surface, high grades of silver at surface, higher than the last time we spoke. Uh, you're most definitely increasing the resource. Will this specifically define the company as an open pit resource project? I think it's a little bit too early to, to say that it's going to be strictly an open pit project. You know, we do have very good grades in the uh, quartz veins and the quartz stockworks uh, contained in the eastern wall of the caldera. You know, the prime determinant will be total ounces contained in the east wall of the caldera. Are there sufficient ounces there? And are the locations of the quartz veins with respect to each other amenable to underground mining? If that works out, then yes, we could have an underground uh, mining operation. Most certainly, at this stage, it looks like we will have open pit operations on the floor of the caldera. 
In addition to growing the resource, your market cap expands naturally due to the growing price of silver. We've had several people come on the program and predict that it's going to hit 50 or $60 announced by the end of the year. That's correct. I mean, currently our market cap is roughly $35, $37 million. This stock is trading approximately $0.27, $0.28 cents Canadian. There are 153 million shares out, so let's assume that silver rallies strongly, the share price rallies strongly, hits a dollar then our market cap is $153 million. So that should, hypothetically, directly affect the share price of your company as well. Any junior exploration company which has got a, an in-situ resource and which is working on developing or expanding that in-situ resource can be viewed as a, um, as a long-term call on the price of silver. So as the price of silver goes up, the price of the silver in the ground or the value of the silver in the ground is going to go up. So therefore, the net present value on a fully diluted basis is going to go up. Therefore, the share price sooner or later is going to have to respond to the increase in the net present value of the underlying the share price. In other words, it's a fancy way of saying that if the price of silver goes up, the value of the silver in the ground goes up, and sooner or later the value of the share price has to go up to reflect the increase of the value of the uh, silver in the ground. Well, we've seen some new shareholder awareness just in the last few weeks that you've been a sponsor of the program. could be due to several different factors. How do you see 2012 playing out for those that are not yet with the company? For 2012, as I said, we have the new resource estimate pending uh, by the end of March of this year. Once we have that in hand, then we'll be able to finish laying out our drill program for 2012, and then we'll begin a a drill program. Initially, it will be 10,000 meters. More than likely, we'll add an an additional 10,000 meters to the drill program for a total of 20,000 meters in 2012. The big question is, where do you focus uh, those meters? And at this point, I think that we will probably put more focus drilling off potential open pit targets on the floor of the caldera than we will in uh, trying to drill off additional quartz veins in the uh, the east wall of the caldera. Well, the open pit means that it's actually going to be a lot cheaper to produce an ounce of silver and uh, additionally create that sort of value for your shareholders. That's correct. It's going to be much cheaper to produce an ounce of silver. It's also going to be much easier to produce an ounce of gold. Typically in the open pit areas, we're seeing about 0.4 to 0.7 grams per ton gold, which is a nice credit to have because generally it will pay for all your mining and milling costs. In addition, if you're looking at an open pit operation, your capital investment is going to be dramatically lower than if you're looking at at an underground mining operation, simply because you're spared the expense of drilling the tunnels, the drifts, the adits, etc. That can be incredibly expensive. And of course, there's plenty of infrastructure in Nayarit State, Mexico. This is not virgin territory at all for mining. No, it's not. We're within, say, 14 kilometers from the airport, 14 kilometers from power. We're roughly 14 kilometers from water. There's a railway that is, I'd say, 8 kilometers from the entrance to the property, and we're 27 kilometers by road from Topeka, the capital of Nayarit State. So with respect to proximity and infrastructure, it's very favorable for the uh, development of the project because the capital investment required, or the infrastructure capital investment required, is actually going to be quite low compared to some other projects I've seen. You never name names, but I can think of one project in South America which is going to require almost 200 kilometer long pipeline to move the concentrate. I mean, that's going to be incredibly expensive. Now, the project economics will support it, but nonetheless, you're talking about huge amounts of money to do that sort of thing. In our case, because we're within 14K of good quality infrastructure, we won't face uh, investments of, of anywhere near that scale. Who are some of the analysts that have covered you lately? 
Starting with Northern Securities, Matthew Zalestra. He has a speculative buy rating on the stock with a one-year target of 47 cents. Uh, he issued his initial coverage in late December of 2011. Mike Bandrowski, mining analyst with Clara Securities, is currently issuing morning notes. Brian Zitzo with Byron Securities has a speculative buy. He currently doesn't have a, uh, a one-year price target. However, he has said that in subsequent research publications, he will have a, uh, a one-year price target. And most recently, Dundee Securities included cream in their summary of junior silver exploration companies uh, for 2012. So effectively, we've got four companies covering us in one form or another. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Ellis. It's my pleasure. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for another exclusive interview, this time with Eric Sprott, chairman of Sprott Money Limited. Mr. Sprott has earned a recognized standing not only as one of the world's premier gold and silver investors, but also as an expert in the precious metals industry. He chronicled the dangers of excessive leverage as well as the bubbles that the Fed was creating while correctly forecasting the tragic collapse of the housing and financial markets in 2008. Eric's prediction on the state of the North American financial markets has been captured throughout the articles that he authors titled Markets at a Glance. And today, we're pleased to have him on the Ellis Martin Report. Eric, welcome to the program. Ellis, uh, happy to be here. Now, with gold near the mid-1600s after a significant pullback, it's still higher year after year after year for the past several years. Why have we not seen some sort of parity or anything close between bullion prices and gold stocks, in your opinion? You know, there's a lot of people talk down gold, and unfortunately, the commodity markets, in particular the COMEX, had a lot of volatility in it in the precious metals. I mean, we saw, for example, on Feb 29th, you know, out of nowhere, fell by a hundred dollars. Those of us who are students of those markets realize that, for the most part, it's people selling silver and paper gold, and they can, in the very short term, can have a material impact in the market. In fact, it's it's interesting. You might have noticed that when the the Bats company went public, the the alternative stock exchange that the high-frequency traders and the algorithmic traders took the stock from 16 to zero in about 10 minutes on their own exchange. It just shows how kind of out of control some of this paper trading can be. And I, I think the fact that gold's been volatile, as has has silver, even more so, and the fact that the prices have weakened off their highs, it's kept people a little bit on edge regarding the uh, precious metal stocks. And I think until we have sort of a proven rise in precious metals, people are going to kind of hold their powder until they see a sustained rally, and I think that's really worked against the gold stocks for one. And the other thing is that there's competing products to stocks, and we're one of the uh, perpetrators in the sense that we have these silver and gold physical trusts, which each of them this quarter has raised $350 million for a total of $700 million into the physical metals, and I think if those weren't quite as popular or not available, then people to participate would be in the stock. So we've been a little bit of our own worst enemy on that side of it as well. Speaking of that, I'm one of the 99 percenters who's collecting silver at near $30 instead of 20 or 10 like I perhaps should have. I've got a real thirst for it. Sooner or later, to use your words, physical silver buyers are going to overwhelm the sellers. What happens then? Well, that's a good question. Some people have postulated that 
you know, there's just defaults on the COMEX because you have all these outstanding contracts. There's, of course, no possible way of settling them through physical delivery because the outstanding position is something like 500 million ounces and we produce 900 million a year. In fact, there's days it trades between 500 million and a billion ounces in a day, even though theoretically for investment purposes, there wouldn't even be a million ounces a day available for investment. Someday, I just think the physical, both in gold and silver, the physical demand on the buy side will overwhelm the sellers and ultimately be at the fault somewhere. So you don't see these mining companies ever be able to cover anything close to that? Even if I was just to take, for example, the difference between 2010 and 2011. In the case of the gold market, which is the best example, it's a 4,000 ton a year market, which includes mine supply of roughly 2,700 tons and perhaps 1,300 tons of recycled material. And that number of 4,000 stayed constant for about the last 12 years. It's hardly moved at all. And yet from 10 to 11, we saw a difference of approximately 800 tons of buying, net new buying, from central banks and China. And I always went, well, who didn't get to buy the 800 tons that these participants are now buying? Did the gold coin buyers not buy it? No. Did the Chinese retail people not buy it? No. Did ETFs not buy it? No. So who's not buying the gold? The only explanation I can give for the shortfall being met is that central banks are surreptitiously selling gold into the physical market and that there is an excess of demand over supply already. And I think this is why certain countries now are, are questioning the policy of lending their gold. And I include in those Switzerland, Germany, Venezuela, of course, took back their gold. And other countries are saying, well, maybe we should have the gold in our own country because it shouldn't be in some other country because we don't know what's happening to it. So I can't begin to explain where the gold comes from other than central banks are continuing to what they call lease gold. And when you lease gold near a central bank, theoretically, you haven't sold it for accounting purposes. But the physical product is gone because it's been consumed by somebody who's not likely to sell it back to you. Well, then what we've got is virtual gold, which is worse than paper money. Totally. You lease gold to somebody and you say, well, I'd like to get it back. And then the guy's got to go to the market and the market demand exceeds supply. Goodness knows what happens to the price and or the guy just reneges. What are you more excited about now, silver or gold? Well, I've been more excited by silver for the last two years. I base that on things I see going on in the silver market, and I'll give you a couple of examples of that. The first example would be you look at the U.S. Mint sales, which are available on their website pretty well every day. For all of 11, the amount of dollars invested by the coin collectors in silver has been equal to the dollars invested in gold, which means that we bought 50 times more physical volume of silver than we have gold. But physical silver supply is only about 11 times that of gold per year. And if I was to put it in what's available for investment, because a big part of silver goes into industrial uses, the ratio is about six to one. Like there might be six times more silver available for investment than gold, but people are buying it at a 50 to one ratio. The other example I could give you, Alice, is that when we, for example, did the last two tranches of our gold and silver trust, we raised exactly the same amount of money in each trust, 350 million each, 349. That means we bought 50 times more silver than we bought gold. There's lots of examples of that where you see the average person being equally disposed between putting the same amount of money into silver and gold, but it can't continue to happen because it's not available in that proportion. Do you know who your customers are? Well, I don't know who all my customers are because when we do our trusts, I'm not aware of exactly who's buying it. Of course, I would know who our internal customers are, but I just 
have to imagine it. It's, you know, the everyday guy out there who sees what's going on in the financial world. And what I'm referring to is just this printing of money and the lending of money to the banks, the propping up of the system, governments buying their own bonds. And there's only one conclusion to reach, and that is that the value of the currencies is being diminished every day. And how do you protect yourself? So there's enough of those people around that they've generated quite a bit of interest in gold and silver. What kind of opportunities are you taking advantage of now in this market? Well, unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of opportunities in the last six months that have played out. But generally, our thesis is we're happy to sell the commodity to buy precious metals stocks because I think the stocks have you know, seriously underperformed uh, the metals. And we think there'll be a, a snapback to that when people realize, one, we don't have an economic recovery in the world. In fact, we may be going to something quite the opposite to a recovery to use European data and Chinese data and things like that. And then also people who just see, you know, the continual suggestion that we're going to print more money, which theoretically Chairman Bernanke suggested a couple of days ago that, gee, maybe the data is not as strong as we think it is. We might not be out of the woods yet, and we might have to be more accommodative in uh, quotation marks. I think you actually stated that you believe we're in a depression. Is that true? Well, I, I see no I see no way out here. When I look at that, I look at the 99%, and I look at what the opportunities are for the 99% who must support the economy. <laughs> uh, you know, that's where most of your consumption comes from. But, you know, when you look at the wage gains versus the increase in cost of living, it just doesn't equate. We had an example of that that just announced in the UK where it said personal income on a, on a real basis had fallen 1.7%. And when your personal income falls on a real basis by 1.7%, that means your disposable income has gone down much more markedly because a lot of people's income is already slated to pay the mortgage or pay off the credit card or fixed utility charges and taxes and things like that. So there's not... At the margin, the disposable income is a lot less than gross income. So you start losing, on a gross income basis, the impact on disposable income is much more dramatic. No way out anytime soon, at least in the Western world. Well, to be brutally honest, I don't see it. I mean, I would say that pretty well all countries have called what's referred to as a Minsky moment. I mean, Minsky, an economist, said when you've expanded by increasing your debt, there becomes a point where your productive capacity can't pay off the debt. The best example of that in the most recent one was Greece. Oh my God, they got $450 billion of debt. This economy of 11 million people can't pay it off. So fine, we'll get someone to write off $100 billion, which they did. And the new debt is trading at something like $0.20 cents on the dollar. So, you know, there's another default. The bond market's already saying they're not going to pay off the existing debt that they just issued. So that's where your productive capacity can't deal with the debt. I think Japan's in that situation. I think lots of European countries are in that situation. I think the U.S. is in that situation. That We have all these obligations, the known direct ones, and then the unknown indirect ones, social security payments that haven't been funded, pensions to civil servants, military commitments, Medicare that have not been funded, and these things are out of control. And I think the recent numbers are the real liabilities on a net present value base are about $80 trillion. And you can imagine a $15 trillion commodity trying to pay off $80 trillion of obligations. I mean, it's impossible. So we're writing off Western Europe and the U.S. What about Asia? What about China? Well, unfortunately, the data in China is deteriorating. And I think the most instructive number to look at is the China Purchasing Manufacturers Index that HSBC puts out once a month. And it has been in contractionary, contractionary mode for five years. It says that the manufacturing in China is negative 
year over year. And a lot of people would probably find that hard to believe, but that's what the survey says. In the last month out, it fell from something like 49 and a half to something like 47 and a half, which is a bigger decline than one expected. We had a report that Chinese companies' or earnings are down 5.8% in the first two months of this year. So I happen to be in the camp that thinks that China also overexpanded, overlent, and might have their own Minsky moment, although certainly not to the extent of the more developed countries. Certainly, you've given this a great deal of thought. How are you feeling about the next five or ten years? How are we going to remake ourselves as a global economy? Well, it's interesting. I, I think it's just much easier to discuss five and ten years than it is, for example, the next quarter or the next half or something, because there's lots of influences that kind of rule the day over the short term. You know, for example, we have this supposed big jobs recovery, which I very much question, and the stock market's playing up because everything is getting better, although, as uh, David Rosenberg explained, for every economic indicator going up, there's two going down. You could talk about housing, you could talk about durable goods, you can talk about consumer sentiment. There's all sorts of things that aren't good that are going on. FedEx warned. I think we're likely to get other warnings here, particularly you have to have a customer who's buying your goods. And if your customers are Chinese and European, I don't think in UK, for example, they're not doing well. And if you don't have strong customers, it's hard to keep things together. Not that I'm a believer that we have a strong economy anyway. I don't believe that here in North America. But when you look out five or ten years and you see this mountain of debt and the disparity between the workers and the non-workers as, you know, we have 10,000 people every day retire and those people probably are reasonably well off and at reasonable wages. But the guy coming in is getting shortchanged these days. I mean, when I sort of contrast what it was like when I started working, you could imagine getting a 10% wage increase for a number of years in a row. I don't think that condition exists today. And people coming out of the university are all saddled with big loans going in. I don't know how one could honestly imagine that things will be the same in five to ten years as they are today. I can't imagine it's better. One of the people that's benefiting from all of this is Eric Sprott. You are selling gold and silver. Well, we're benefiting from the point of view that, yes, people want to own gold and silver. As a firm, we're not benefiting from the point of view that gold stocks are not doing well. We tend to have a bearish stance on the market. Of course, the market's worked against us here for a number of months. So, yes, we have some wins, but we also have some losses. I think Given the passage of time and the facing of reality by the market, both theories that gold will go up and that the stocks will have a correction here will play out. There are few companies that seem to be extremely resistant in this market. Not many, but there are some. You think there's a rally going on right now with some steady growth? Well, there's definitely a rally going on. We know that. To what degree we have growth is open to question. I'm going to quote from a report that I read that suggested, I'm not really sure of the timeline, but let's just say they said, well, from 2007 to today, sales of companies are up by something like 5.8% and profits are up 95 Well, that's not something that will continue. That's a mathematical certainty. You have to have more sales. You can't have your sales going down and expect your profits to go up. And we could pick any number of industries, you know, whether it's the housing industry whose sales are probably down 75% from their peak or the auto industry this where the sales are down 33% from their peak. It's very difficult to think that we're in some great, strong economy. We're not. We're just bumping along in the bottom. And, of course, there's a lot of hope that it gets better. And every now and then we get some data, such as the, the jobs data, which, again,
again, a question that says it's better. But, you know, as Chairman Bernanke said a couple of days ago, you know, we've had some good data, but we've always got to be vigilant because it may not continue, and we've got to remain accommodative. And I suspect that we've had a, a very benign time here in January and February because we haven't had the seasonal impact we normally would have. And I suspect that those seasonal adjustments made the jobs look better than they are. And once we get back to apples-to-apples comparisons, I don't think it's going to look that good. I suspect that's true in the home front, too. I mean, it was a great time to go out and look for homes in January and February this year when you wouldn't even thought of it last year. So we may have pulled some of our economic strength into January and February, and once we get more normal apples-to-apples comparison, we'll find out that the first two months borrowed from the subsequent months. Do you think that we're primed for another event like we had in January of 2008? And if so, would that be a fatal blow? Uh, you're referring to the uh, the market correction, is that? Yes, around January 17th, 2008. Yeah, well, that could happen at any time. I mean, I sort of sit back and I'm amazed that the market's done what it's done, and I tend to be a non-believer in the market. I always find it shocking that the market goes up on continually declining volume, which is not what's supposed to happen. If people are bullish, you're supposed to be investing more in stocks. It should be higher volume, but somehow we're in this miraculous situation where the volume almost goes to record lows, and yet the market keeps rising. And I can imagine that things could fall apart rather quickly. The economic data is not going to hold up, and all of a sudden we have this paradigm shift where, oh my God, we thought it was getting better, and it's not. And I suspect that Bernanke was kind of leaning that way, that He's waiting for some of his data not to confirm. He said, well, yeah, don't worry, we'll be ready with QE3. What positive message can we finish up this conversation with, Eric? Well, I I think that when I look back at the trading history of both gold and silver, you see uh, very unusual events that have happened. Uh, As you may be aware, there's a lawsuit against uh, J.P. Morgan and HSBC that they manipulated the price of silver in 2008. Uh, that is a public document I'm referring to. There's been a three-and-a-half-year investigation by the COMEX about whether there's been any manipulation in the silver market without any answer, which is kind of mind-boggling that it could go on that long. There's very strange things happen in the paper markets from time to time that those of us who are students of it just can hardly believe that certain things happen when they do. The most recent one was Feb 29th, when all of a sudden at 10 a.m., the whole, just as gold and silver were breaking out all of a sudden, they had these massive reversals. For what reason? I'm not sure. You know, gold went down 100 bucks intraday, which is, you'll never see it go up 100 bucks in a day, by the way. Or I shouldn't say never, it probably will, but it doesn't normally move much more than 1% or 2% in a day. So I just think that sooner or later, the physical markets are going to overwhelm the paper markets and we'll hopefully get back to a sustained increases in prices yet again. I mean, Gold's been the investment of the last decade. It's gone up every year for 12 years. Silver's been a little choppier, but it's actually gone up more than gold on a percentage basis. And I'm pretty optimistic that when we get to the end of the year, we'll be at new highs in gold, we'll be at new highs in silver, and the stocks will react accordingly. So the market will withstand and overcome, if not overwhelm, this forced suppression by perhaps the banks and the Fed combined. That can happen more than once, can it? Well, you know, I think one of my peer group, James Turk, put it best. He said, you know... Eric, there's a managed retreat. There's just a managed retreat in the price of gold. It never goes up that much in a year, you know. I don't even know if it's ever gone up 20% in a year, but it's averaged something like 17 and never without volatility. There's always this volatility, you know, everyone hates it for three months and then it works its way back up and then they hate it again for three months. Given time and given what's going on in the world, the debasement of currencies, it's it's hard for me to imagine that rational thinking people don't realize that 
owning gold and silver is a way better bet than, for example, owning a bond. I mean, I just can't believe that people would own bonds when you look at the balance sheets of the countries of the bonds they own. I mean, they're they're an absolute mess. As I mentioned to you earlier, just imagine if you're a consumer, and I'm going to say instead of the $15 trillion the U.S. government has, let's say somebody has $15,000 of income, and they're trying to support $80,000 in debt. I mean, there's just no way that it's possible to do it. The math just doesn't work. So, therefore, they got to keep trying to find some way of extending and pretending and suggesting everything's wonderful and good. And uh, that will, of course, lead to more and more concern about the currencies, which will obviously cause people to go to gold and silver, which it's done for the last 12 years. Well, Eric, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. It's been enlightening. I look forward to visiting with you again in the near future. Thanks for your time. Alice, it was all my pleasure. All the best to you. I've been speaking with Eric Sprott, the chairman of Sprott Money, own the only real monetary assets, physical gold, and silver bullion. Hear the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. I've been on the road with Scott Drever in probably three different conferences, and it's only the beginning of March. Scott Drever is the president, the CEO of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SBL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Scott, again, welcome to the program. Thanks once again, uh, Ellis. It's great to be here. We are road warriors, aren't we? seems to be that way. Uh, We've spent a lot of time on the road the first part of the year. Do you find when you come out to these conferences all over North America that you get a chance to tell your story to new potential investors and meet with the shareholders and update them in person? What's the value in that for you? It's just that we have been doing a lot of road shows and telling the story of Silvercrest and its progress with respect to its cash flow and its expiration program. And what that does is uh, make people familiar with the story. There's a lot of people uh, across North America that aren't familiar with Silvercrest, and we're just trying to get as many people looking at the story as we possibly can because we think it's a great story in the silver space. We consider there's a lot of upside potential to it. Well, it seems like you've either been very successful at talking about your company or the results that you're finding in Mexico and Sonora State are outstanding with respect to your La Jolla and your Santa Elena properties. Yes, I think people are are starting to realize that the combination of things that we have in this company make it a very, very interesting story. The Santa Elena has reached a steady state of production. We've got a uh, two-year program there to double the current production. And uh, La Jolla is turning out some really, really exciting uh, results on the on the exploration work that we've done so far. You know, with about 3,000 companies or more in the junior mining space, it's really difficult to find a small handful of companies where the risk has been minimalized. And I believe you're one of those companies where the risk is fairly minimal. That's certainly true. Santa Elena, we went to commercial production last year. So all the resource risk, the financing risk, permitting risk, all of those things that you run into in in mining operations and bringing them on stream have been put behind us. And with a heap leach open pit operation like we have, one of the risks are generally the last one to be cleared is the recoveries on the metals that you're putting on the heaps. And we're seeing recoveries track very closely the uh, metallurgical work that we did to determine what the recoveries would be. So that's kind of the last one out. Our operations are running nicely. We're putting more through the mill than we had expected uh, initially. And so the goal just keeps coming out at the end of the tube. 
Is it a matter of a natural flow of understating and overperforming? Well, we like to do that. We like to be able to look back and say, well, we said we were going to do that and we've done it. So yeah, we tend to understate a little bit and, and hopefully overperform. Tell us about the potential size of the polymetallic resource at the Coloradito target in La Jolla. Yeah, we have several targets at La Jolla. The one that we focused on, obviously, is the main mineralized trend where we announced a resource recently of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent. There are a couple of adjacent targets to that main mineralized trend, one of which is the Colorado Dito. And we announced the results of some historical drilling that we were able to uh, confirm. We see there a uh, tungsten molly gold-silver system that has some sizable dimensions, if you can look at the, the historical data, and we have a number of holes planned for that. But generally, the container size there, I think, is about 500 meters by 200 meters wide by a couple of hundred meters depth. There's a lot of room for a large potential open pit deposit, but obviously we have a lot of work to determine how much of that container size has uh, the appropriate mineralization. So you really can't speculate about how that's defined at this moment. You can just say that you're looking. That's exactly correct. We have an 80-hole program going on at the moment for La Jolla, and I think there's eight or ten slated for that particular deposit. And at the end of that series, we'll have a much better idea of what it means and how big it might be. Is that 80 holes for 2012? Uh, Yes. Uh, We hope to have that finished probably by June. Uh, with the view to doing a resource update before the end of the year. How are you financing all all this drilling? We have $30 million in cash in the Treasury. We're well positioned there. Also, Santa Elena is uh, providing about 2 to $2.5 million a month in cash flow. So from cash flow and cash in the bank, we're well positioned to finance both our expansion plans and our exploration activity. You're well on the way to predicted ratings by some of the research analysts that have been following you. Yeah, we've made good progress towards those targets. I think Canaccord's analyst has put a $5.75 as a target price for us. Jennings Capital out of Toronto has a target price of $5.25. And Dundee Capital just initiated their coverage on us last week and uh, have put a buy signal on it but haven't given us a target number yet. So these are all recent updates, if I recall. That's true, yeah. We had a, um, a mine tour and a site tour a couple of weeks ago, and those analysts were on those trips. You know, they're talking from firsthand viewing of our work and, and what we're doing, and, uh, you know, they make their own judgments. Well, that's up about a dollar, dollar and a half or so since we last spoke at the end of January. We've been doing some extra legwork in terms of getting the story out, and I think we're starting to see the traction uh, grab hold on the the story and people are looking at the value that's here now and the value they see coming down the road, it's created that kind of interest and we're trading good volumes. We're doing probably four or 500,000 shares a day, which gives everybody good liquidity. Nevertheless, as, as well known as you may be in Canada and throughout us in the sector, you're still a new story to many in the U.S. We've started to focus on that because obviously the the market there, particularly for silver companies, is much, much greater than uh, what it would be in Canada. So we've redirected some of our investor awareness program to the U.S. We've been doing road shows in eastern U.S., in the Midwest, and also on the West Coast. There again, I think it's people starting to be aware of that story. We're also looking at the possibility of moving to a, a more senior exchange both in Canada and the U.S. What are you most excited about Silvercrest during the next 12 to 18 months? 
Obviously, the operations are important. It'll help us to build our cash flow, and the uh, expansion plan that'll help us to, to double our production are, are very important things. And those are good, stable things that every company needs. The excitement, I think, is going to turn around the La Jolla project because our first indications on that is that it has the potential to be a huge deposit and uh, can be a significant game changer for Silvercrest. Bigger than Santa Elena? Absolutely. Uh, I think if you look at the numbers at La Jolla of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent, it's probably bigger at this moment than what Santa Elena is, although we still have the expansion plan to determine what uh, Santa Elena's ultimate size will be. I've been speaking with Scott Drever, the president and CEO of Silvercrest Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX is STVZF. And we're at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto, Ontario. Scott, thank you very much for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you very much. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced stage gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's Tanzanian TanzanianRoyalty.com. David Duval is a 40-year veteran of the Canadian minerals industry. He served a decade as Western editor for the largest weekly mining publication in the world before forming his own consulting company in 1990. As a technical advisor to the United Nations and Royal Government of Thailand, he coordinated the feasibility study for the $500 million Association of Southeast Asian Nations Potash Project in Thailand. Mr. Duval is a recognized authority on the Canadian diamond industry, having co-authored New Frontiers in Mining in 1996. David serves as special advisor to Jim Sinclair, the president and CEO of sponsor company Tanzanian Royalty, trading on the New York Stock Exchange as TRX. Tanzanian Royalty is developing an advanced stage gold project in Tanzania in partnership with the state mining corporation of that country. David and Mr. Sinclair co-founded the online newsletter JSMindset.com in 2003, which offers free commentary on gold and currency markets and is a traffic leader in its market segment. David, welcome back to the program. I'm very pleased to be here. I've been speaking with several people during the past week about what to make out of this market when many of the juniors have been underperforming as a bottom attempts to find itself. Yet your company, Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, continues to perform and has done so for several months. Well, we, we've been somewhat uh, sort of counterintuitive almost in the marketplace, which is a nice position to be in. You know, we've really got a lot going in Tanzania. We, you know, we're well-financed, uh, unlike some other companies that are struggling because of these uh, quite variable sort of market conditions that we're seeing. So we're drilling our core property, Buck Reef as well, and we're looking at drilling some of our other properties in our portfolio in the coming months, and uh, we're bringing on new staff. And uh, so we've got a lot of momentum that's building on the exploration front, and that's, I think, uh, going to continue for the uh, foreseeable future. So there's really a lot happening with the company, and I think the market recognizes that. And, and they recognize some of our recent successes on the drilling front as well. We've uh, pulled some really good holes in the Buck Reef main zone, which is our core project. It's a, a joint venture with the, basically the Tanzanian government, the State Mining Corporation of Tanzania. So, you know, we're making good progress, and uh, we see that sort of continuing. 
Although you've doubled since December, you're still 30 to 40% below your 52-week high of $7.82. Is there any reason to believe that we won't see that again this year? Again, it's sort of contingent on the gold price, I, I think, really. And, of course, we are uh, uh, bullish on, on gold prices. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the business. You know, the gold market has been volatile, and it's just a very volatile business. It has been sort of historically, and it's probably going to continue like that. And since I believe I was at the uh, Prospectors Convention in Toronto in March, and I was listening to Dr. Martin Mernbelt from Dundee Wealth, and he, uh, of course, tracks gold prices down through the uh, you know, decades, this type of thing. And, and he basically said there have been six or seven, I think, uh, downturns of at least 10% in the gold price since that time. You know, we're seeing a lot of volatility in the gold market, but the reasons for that volatility are really what is pushing gold up. And, and we think gold is going a lot higher this year, and it's going to be reflected in the stock prices of all gold companies. You know, a rising tide sort of raises all ships, this type of thing. But when you look at our performance, you know, in recent sort of months uh, in a rising gold market sort of market, uh, we've basically led the pack, and, and I don't really see that changing. Uh, I, I think we're going to be a, an industry leader within our peer group and, you know, subject to some improvement in the gold market, which we do see coming, really. When you look at those employment numbers that came out on Friday and the uh, debt levels the uh, U.S. government has uh, sort of been maintaining, and, you know, in recent years, the gold price uh, has got one way to go, and I think that's up, really. But it's certainly not a business for the faint of heart. I think you've got to be in it for the longer term, two to three years. Uh, any money I've made in the market has been in that basis. If you watch every tick on the market day in and day out, it will just drive you crazy. And, uh, you know, I would encourage people just to not look at their portfolios. It's not the easiest thing to do. I've managed to do it. I just avoid looking at my portfolio for about a month or so. You know, after that, you sort of look at it, and it usually looks a lot better, really. Well, there's a huge temptation as an investor to cut your losses when you see dips with companies that are not performing as well as yours. But you're saying just look away. I think at some point, obviously, you want to cut your losses and sort of rejig your portfolio into better performing stocks. And I do that a bit. Uh, I don't have a huge portfolio in terms of the number of companies I have in it. Dollar-wise, it's, it's significant, obviously. But the number of companies, I, I tend to, you know, restrict my choice to, you know, to companies that have advanced stage projects and uh, companies that I think really have a, a future that are heading towards commercial production, which, of course, is the case with us at Buckreef. Doubling back a bit to an earlier point you made, the success of Tanzanian in the markets is telegraphing a positive note for the sector as a whole, possibly. Again, it depends what stage you are. Uh, you know, obviously the gold producers, the barracks and what have you that have leverage to gold production will probably move first. And then the uh, market will see potential, I think, with development uh, stage companies. And then they will move down to the more junior sector, more speculative companies. That's typically the way the market operates. Interestingly enough, Tanzanian royalty is pretty well traded. You know, when the gold market is moving higher, Tanzanian royalty has tended to trade, you know, with the producers, with the uh, companies that are actually producing the product. We're looking at production in 2014. We don't actually have any commercial production right at the moment. We probably will have some production from our uh, Kagosi project on a, on a much smaller scale basis, perhaps next year sometimes. But nonetheless, we have been trading pretty well lockstep with the gold price and with the actual producers themselves. You know, we certainly are quite sort of unusual within our peer group. Uh, we, we've been trading like McEwen 
Mining, which uh, is also, a, well, they're a development stage company. They're a little more advanced in terms of where they are on the development sort of end of it. They are going to commercial production and will probably have some production, I think, next year sometime. So. A great deal of the success of a company like Tanzanian Royalty, of course, has to do with the management team and the person at the helm. In this case, Jim Sinclair. Well, this business is really all about people, about management. It tends to be project-specific as well. You know, good managers tend to get good projects, and that certainly is the case with us. We've acquired these assets in uh, Tanzania over the years, including Buck Reef uh, back in 2010, and we've put uh, a lot of uh, sweat sort of equity into uh, Buck Reef sort of in particular, and we have the government of Tanzania on our side in the form of the State Mining Corporation of Tanzania, which is our partner in the Buck Reef project, and uh, they're also a, a shareholder in our uh, Kagosi uh, project as well. So uh, I think it was really a smart move on our part, uh, developing Buck Reef on that uh, basis, you know, with a the government sort of partner. They have a vested interest in the thing succeeding, and uh, this is going to be a, a showcase uh, operation for the government of Tanzania. It's very much going to be the public face, I think, of the State Mining Corporation of Tanzania in the market. They're really on our side, and, and uh, you know, they've been working hard to assist us in making this thing a success, and I think the market uh, has come to recognize that. There's no real political risk in this thing, because we have the government on our side, really. The, they are our partner, and the government obviously would not uh, do anything to harm that relationship, because uh, obviously it would be to their detriment as well. You mentioned political risk, and in Tanzania, with your company, there virtually is none in a part of the world where there's plenty of political risk. Clearly, you've chosen an area of Africa that has a long history in mining and is very interested in partnerships with organizations like yours that are concerned about sustainability and working with the people. Well, that's correct. I mean, there's political risk all over, not just in Africa, you know, throughout the Americas, including the U.S. and Canada as well. It's a different type of sort of political risk, of course, and, you know, there are a lot of uh, environmental sort of risk in terms of permitting, and there are a lot of groups that just oppose mining. It doesn't matter where it's being done, and North America is not that much different uh, in that sort of regard. But Tanzania, the... uh, mining industry is accounting for a significant amount of its uh, sort of economic growth and i think the government real i'm sure the government realizes that they're doing their best to promote the mining industry and the uh, development of uh, new resources not just on the gold end of it but uh, you know with base metals nickel what have you and uh, iron and, and the whole sort of gambit really because this type of activity is really wealth generating it, it creates wealth out of nothing in a sense really find an ore body uh, and you extract the minerals out of that ore body and it creates wealth for the country really and for the companies that are putting up the risk capital to develop the resource as well. And one final question David, what can we expect from the company looking ahead the next 12 to 18 months? Obviously we're at a critical juncture in our history. As I mentioned we are a development stage company, we are growing our resource base, we've got two projects that uh, we're looking at bringing to commercial production. You know, within two years, Kagosi will be a much smaller scale operation. Cash flow from that operation will be used to develop our Buck Reef project, which is the big kahuna. That will be a plus 100,000 ounce per year producer in 2014. You know, we are growing our resource base at Buck Reef, and of course, a larger resource base provides you with the opportunity to increase commercial production to sort of higher levels, and that is our near-term and our long-term objective as well, to maximize production at Buck Reef. Again, that is dependent on the uh, amount of resources you have in the ground. From what we see from drilling so far, 
it looks like we are going to grow our resource at Buck Reef quite substantially. We have a very large land position there, and uh, you can sort of extrapolate from that. There's plenty of room for resource growth there, probably doubling or tripling of the existing resource that we have there. Well, David, thanks for bringing us up to date with regards to Tantanian Royalty Exploration Corporation. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure. It was really nice talking with you. I've been speaking with David Duval, Special Advisor to Jim Sinclair, the President of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Subscribe to our news alerts. When one of our sponsor companies puts out some news, you'll know about it fast. Register at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm visiting with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. East Main is an active explorer in eastern Canada with an ongoing partnership with major gold producer Gold Corp. 50% of this year's drilling will be focused on increasing the size of high-grade measured and indicated gold resources in the 450 and 850 west zones of East Main's Eau Claire project, which may be amenable to extraction by open pit methods. I'm a shareholder of the company, and East Main is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Don, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Ellis. It's always a pleasure. You put out a news release last week outlining a 40,000-meter drill program underway at your Eau Claire project in Quebec. Yes, well, we will have a substantial program on our Clearwater project. Fundamental objective is expand the Eau Claire size of the open pit first and foremost and underground uh, after that. You already have a sizable resource. Is it your intention to define all of the property that's under your domain? Well, our intention is to demonstrate that we have a standalone deposit that could support its own operation. That's not necessarily our business plan to build the operation ourselves, but it's our plan to explore it, drill it, and expand it to demonstrate that to the market. East Main has performed fairly well in the trying market. Overall, we have slightly outperformed the emerging producers and our explorer peer group. We're not happy about it. I don't think any of the explorers or the emerging producers are happy about it, but we have been able to sort of stay in the pack or a little bit ahead of the pack. And the reason being is that we have a project that when you look at all of the major gold projects around the world, there are 329 of them that are greater than 1 million ounces. And of those, there's 163 of them that aren't in production. If we look at a few more criteria, if you look at projects that have greater than 1.5 million ounces and greater than 3 grams, there's only 13 of them in North America, and we are one of the 13. This is why we think, you know, we've got something on our hands that's significant and compelling. And you're in an area with quite a bit of infrastructure and support from the provincial government. And that's exactly the next component that, you know, has to be looked at. Do you have to build a 500-kilometer long power line or access route to it? No, we don't. We are right beside a permanent road and we're right beside some of the cheapest power in the world. So the other component that goes with it is that the project uh, has relatively simple metallurgy through high gravity and flotation recoveries. 
so there's not any technical obstacles that we see that would prevent this project from moving along. Our next and fundamental objective is can you push it into the next tier in terms of size? And we had made a significant impact on the project last year, expanding the project by about 550 meters to the west. That will be incorporated into a new resource update coming down the pipeline. But in the meantime, we are drilling as we speak the north edge of the known resource. We've got six or seven holes into it. We've hit a new swarm of veins. One of the veins, we've seen visible gold into it, which is a telltale to say that, yes, some of these at least will be gold-bearing, and hopefully it'll make a significant impact on the resource that we have already. Now, it's not your intention, and you've stated this several times, to bring Eau Claire into production yourself. You're going through the process and succeeding in making it very attractive as a possible takeout project for East Main. One of your large investors and joint venture partners is Goldcorp. Goldcorp and other companies are courting you, are they not? I think all of them have their eyes and ears on all of the advanced projects that are active out there. Ours is one of them, that's for sure. Goldcorp have got their hands full developing their LNR project. It looks like it's a quite attractive one, and it will bring more eyes to our district in terms of potential of a new area where the first large mine is about to start. Speaking of your district, you have also stated that you feel it's comparable in Quebec to the Timmins Gold District in Ontario. And it's all based on geology, is that the geological terrain that we're dealing with, we call them greenstone belts, the rocks are green and they're ancient volcanoes, but they just happen to host a lot of metal, in particular some large gold deposits and base metal deposits. That's why we started there in the first place. That was the compelling reason of looking at analogs from projects in Timmins and Valdor and Red Lake and lo and behold, surprise, surprise, they're also being found in our district. And it's aided and abetted by the fact that the Quebec government's built a bunch of roads into the district through Hydro-Quebec. And their plan Nord, they're building some more roads at the east end of the district. And that's what will dictate success with exploration going in the future. You've managed to keep a sizable cash reserve in an otherwise difficult market environment. We have been able to maintain a significant treasury, and in part, there's a Quebec advantage that there's rebates that come back from expenditures in the ground or positive tax derivative financing mechanisms that's allowed us to raise money at a substantial premium. But what allows us really to do these financings is that the market, despite its being difficult for financing for many companies, if you have a project that's significant and has a chance of becoming a future operation, you're able to finance. You're going to be appearing at the heart of the theater district in Manhattan on May 14th and 15th for the Hard Assets Conference at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Times Square. We have a sizable audience in that part of the country, and anyone that attends will have a chance to meet and speak with you, perhaps. Well, we hope that they come and see us at the Hard Assets Show. We will be also presenting outside of the show at your typical marketing efforts that need to go on despite what's going on in the marketplace. You've been more active in presenting the story than I've ever seen you in the past, Don. As busy as you are, what's driving you? There's a lot of long-term shareholders that want to see results. My partner will tell us that the best time to be marketing is when the markets are the worst. So we have a very full plate in terms of the program ahead of us, but we also intend to keep the marketing effort full on. Well, Don, as always, it's been a pleasure visiting with you again. Thanks for the update on your company. I look forward to seeing you at the Hard Assets Conference in New York City coming up 
on May 14th. Always a pleasure, Ellis. I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. What? It's over? No, it can't be true! What will I do? What will I say? What? Oh, oh, this. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Then they run right back to work and get jiggy with getting busy. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report is a unit of Big Sky Productions Incorporated. For Ellis Martin, this is Cool Voice Guy. Ciao, babies. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.